The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start tonight in verse 15. As you're turning there, I want to wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day. I see some of you uh, wore green, as is tradition. I did not, but don't pinch me, because it might go bad for you. Um, just kidding. You can. I deserve it. It's pretty funny, really, though, that this is St. Patrick's Day, specifically because of the verses we're going to be getting into. Uh, these, these scriptures we're going to study today, they're going to show us that when Jesus makes us new, and we are no longer blind to the truth, that celebrating by gathering like this to worship Jesus through singing and studying his word and taking communion together, it really makes a lot more sense uh, than getting sloshed on green beer and acting a fool on St. Patrick's Day. So these verses are going to help us and uh, help us feel better about the decision we made to be gathered with God's people today. Uh, We're continuing this week in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. This is our eighth week. Uh, And it's been really encouraging for me, talking to many of you, who've told me you're not only enjoying uh, learning the information in this letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus, but you're also experiencing growth and transformation as we walk through this together. And so uh, I know that's happening for me as well. This has been great. And uh, we've got four more weeks to go. This will take us right up to Easter. And so we're having a good time. I hope you came ready to work today because we're going to study 17 verses together. And these verses in particular are packed with encouraging, challenging, and life-giving truth. So I'm hoping that uh, we can all just go at this together like a starving man at a buffet, okay? So we're going to read chapter 4, starting in verse 15. We're in the book of Ephesians. Ready? Here we go. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an, do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Praise God for his word. I told you we have work to do. All right, so let's go back to verses 15 and 16. We'll jump right in here. These two verses, it really could have been included in the verses that we read last week. And as with other subjects that Paul addresses throughout this letter, he's really hammering down on this point through repetition and coming at it from slightly different angles. Whenever you see that repetitive pattern in the scriptures, it's really wise to pay special attention to what is being said. We should pay attention to everything being said in the scriptures, but when something's being said over and over from different angles, it's a good thing for us to really key in on. In verse 14, which is one before where we started this week, we covered that last week. Paul summarizes the goal of Christian maturity as taking responsibility for unity among the saints and for our gospel mission of building up the body of Christ by making disciples. But he says it this way in verse 14, as a result of all of that, taking that responsibility, we are no longer children. So this means that the mission Jesus gave all of us is designed to include the participation of each of us. And this idea is so important that Paul lays it out one more time here by way of analogy. And so I know that that, we covered that last week, but we have to cover it again. we got to say it again because Paul's saying it again. And if he's saying it again, then we should pay attention. We should ask ourselves, all right, why? Why did he not only say it this way and that way, but now he's coming back in the last two verses here, uh, or these next two verses, giving us another analogy to help us understand how vital this is. Here's the analogy, verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, is there anybody in here that would say, they are halfway decent, at least, at thumb war. You guys know what I'm talking about? One, two, three, four? I declare thumb war. Anybody in here halfway good at it? You wouldn't claim to be good at it. Is everyone just being falsely humble in here? Okay, well, I need somebody, so don't make me pick. Somebody come do thumb war with me right now. I need you. Craig, come on, brother. I got you. You sat in the front, man. It's your fault. Okay, so you guys know how this goes. We're going to grab each other's hands. Well, it's, when I teach my kids jiu-jitsu, I make them bow for respect, so let's do that first. Okay, all right. Now, now we're going to do thumb war. You, you know, what's, you're just trying to pin my thumb. You know how to do it, right? Okay. I, not everybody has, man, you know? All right. One, two, three, four. I declare thumb war. Don't go easy on me. Give me everything you got. He got me. So, so is the hiding it behind like that? That's a trick for me to go for it. So this man has played some thumb war before. Okay, I didn't know what I got into there. Congratulations, sir. Okay, now, why did that just happen? I'm sure you're asking yourself. It's a great question. Now, when you think about, besides the high-level strategy he brought to the table that I was not aware of, nor did I have... What does it seem to you that winning or losing that game is dependent on? It's dependent on the strength of what? Your thumb, right? It's dependent on the strength of one part of your body. And to some degree, yeah, that's true, but it's not, it's not totally true, or that's not all-inclusive, right? Because if, I don't know if you could see it, but 
there are tendons and ligaments running into your forearm that if they weren't operating correctly, it would absolutely render you unable to even participate, much less win, at a thumb war. Go farther, if your heart wasn't pumping blood down to your hand, your, your, your thumb would die along with the rest of you, right? There's nerves that have to send signals to your brain properly to be able to do what you're doing there with your thumb. If your lungs weren't working correctly, your blood wouldn't be able to carry oxygen to the muscles in your thumb, and it would be useless. If your stomach and intestines weren't working properly, then your body wouldn't have the nutrients needed to support all the other functions we just talked about. And if they're not working properly, then that thumb isn't going to be able to go make war with another thumb. Right? This is how Paul says the body of Christ works. That we are each held together. This is his language. Held together by what every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part. It's all tied together. There is no confusion here. The message is clear. When we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are made a part of his body. And we are expected to discover and do our part. And there is more at stake than just our own joy, peace, and hope. Because we are connected and our purpose is collective. That 100% is what he is another, in another way through analogy telling us in verses 15 and 16. Amen. May we live as if that's true. We're going to take verses 17 to 24 together. These verses call us to live in the newness of life that Jesus provides, leaving behind the old ways that were the result of being dead in our sin and dark in our understanding. Verses 22 and 24, they have this really interesting language of laying aside our old self and then putting on the new self. And this language is meant to make us picture taking off one set of garments and putting on another. That's, what, that's the what analogy he's using there. So Paul is basically saying that for believers, thinking, speaking, and acting like we did before Jesus made us new through his life, death, and resurrection is like someone being freed from prison but refusing to take off the orange jumpsuit. Many times people are held back from their purpose in God because they are trapped by the prison of their past. And this can be the result of your own sin or the sins of others, uh, perception issues. There's all kinds of ways that can happen. And it can happen knowingly and unknowingly. Sometimes people know it's my past holding me back. Sometimes people have no idea what it is that's holding them back. But Paul calls those who have been set free and made new because of Jesus to cast off the old ways of futility and foolishness and put on the new garments of freedom and faithfulness. There is a lot of focus here through these verses on our minds and the way we think, and that is not an accident. Let me just key in here and, and, and show you the phrases that I'm talking about. So uh, the first one is that those who are dead in sin, they walk in futility of their mind. He says that in verse 17. Paul is not saying that those who don't trust and obey Jesus are dumb or that their minds are empty. That's not what futility means. He's saying that they, their minds are just full of things that don't actually matter. That's what futility means. I have a t-shirt 
that says, don't fear failure, fear succeeding at things that don't really matter. It's got a very good message. Natalie doesn't like the shirt because she says the design is bad, but I said, I don't care. I also had a tuxedo t-shirt that she didn't like. I got rid of that out of preference to my wife. But this shirt, I like the message too much, so I don't care that she doesn't like the design. That's a constant tension point for me and some of the other leaders here as well, okay? <laughs> so just, just so you know. Uh, that looks like garbage. I don't care. I like what it says. We always work it out, though, because of unity and stuff. So <laughs> Satan tries to keep unbelievers distracted, okay, with the little temporal trinkets of this life. So they have no time to consider the weightier and more glorious matters of eternity. This warning also shows that those who have turned from sin to trust in Jesus are not immune to this kind of deception. And so he, what he's saying, he uses Gentiles, he uses people that are still trapped in darkness who have not seen the light of Christ. He uses them as an example, but he's, what he's saying is don't do what they're doing. So what, it, what it's telling us is it's possible for us to walk in that kind of futility, even having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, even having seen the light of the glory of the gospel. And so we must guard against it. The other thing he talks about, there's two more that would kind of point to this language of, of our mind and thinking. He says there's ignorance involved. There's ignorance. And that's, when, when you think about what that means, what he means in this context, it's like someone that's, that's lost in a deep cave. And futile distractions, they keep people from exploring the truth and they keep people from seeing the light and beauty outside. When, when, it's that, when you think of that ignorance and that futility language put together, it's imagine, imagine somebody just fumbling in a dark cave. They, they can't get their bearings. And, and what, what good is groping around along those walls over and over in circles and circles? And that's, that's basically what it looks like to be trapped in the darkness of sin and not be free to do what it is God made you to do. The last bit of language that would kind of have to do with our thinking and our, our mind is, is, our, is hardness of heart and being calloused. And so this language highlights the danger of ignoring these warnings. The Bible warns in many places that if we continue to sin willfully and we disregard the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the passive wrath of God, as described in Romans 1. And that's what this language, when he says, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. That given themselves over language, you'll see it in Romans 1. Uh, you'll see it in other places. That language in verse 19, it's not only that people can fully give themselves over to darkness and destruction of sin as they chase fleeting counterfeit pleasures, but if God's loving calls to repentance are ignored long enough, he also will hand you over to the consequences of rejecting him. He will let you have what you want. This is described as happening over a long period of time. This is not something that happens quickly, but uh, when the Old Testament talks about the wrath of God, those are, most of the verses that make people upset about God or not able to trust him... They're real concerned about uh, Old Testament verses that show God's wrath, the active wrath of God, right? Everyone thinks about Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood, things like that. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me say this, but I'm just going to keep saying it because the reality is 
I would much rather experience the active wrath of God to get my attention than I would the passive wrath of God, which means I've ignored him long enough that he's given me over to my stupidity. Um, I, I don't know if you're there, but I, I just think that's the wise way to think about it. I think wise prayers would be that, God, if I were to be to the point where I'm rejecting the loving conviction of your Holy Spirit, where I'm, I'm basically living as if I know better than you do, I think it's very wise for us to pray, God, please do whatever it takes to get my attention, including bang me up a little bit or, or whatever it takes, right? That's in his hands and he's merciful and good and, and we can pray those kind of prayers because we know how good and merciful he is. Amen. Now it's interesting that in verse 23, we see the beginning of this, the contrast to everything I just said, right? So he's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do, like this, calloused and, and ignorance and and futility. But then he begins to contrast this, and he says in verse 23, uh, that happens by being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay, And so part of this overall language on this new self, putting on the new self, it's renewing your mind. And this is the same instruction that Paul gave the Romans in a more condensed way in, in Romans 12 too. Let me read that to you. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this, there's recurring language here, this renewing of the mind. Now, we talk a lot about getting a new heart when Jesus saves us by his grace, but sometimes I think we underemphasize his provision for a renewed mind. This is important. Most of us would like to think Let's be honest, most of us would like to think we are logical creatures, that we process the data points and then we make decisions based on facts. However, there are mountains of psychological research that shows the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time, are making decisions based off of instinct and emotion, and then using logic later to justify the decision they made based on instinct and emotion. And we've gotten pretty good at that. Looks like maybe two of you agree that that's possible. The rest of you are like, no, this guy's totally off. I'm a logic monster. No, you're not. You think you are. Listen, this is a smack in the mouth for me too, okay? Because I would definitely like to fancy myself, you know, more fact-driven than instinct or emotionally driven. But God can help us with this. It's not really surprising, I don't think, for you to hear that we are less logically driven than, than we sometimes think, right? Because have you ever heard a Disney song about following your mind? No. But the idea of following our hearts is constantly romanticized and it's lifted up as some kind of bravery, right? Which is interesting because that's actually our problem most of the time is that we are following our hearts. Now, let's say this. There, there are two ditches here to be sure, uh, because we can make decisions and conduct ourselves out of cold logic with no consideration for the emotions. I said the vast majority of people the vast majority of the time. There are those who, for various reasons, um, there is not enough consideration given to the fact that emotion is a part of how we make decisions, but we can also make emotional decisions devoid of logic, and uh, I would say most of us probably have a few stories of how that's gone. Um, if, if we're honest and, and introspective. The gospel middle path that avoids those ditches is to see that God has given us both mind and emotions, 
and that his desire is for both to be made new by the power of his grace and for both to be shaped by the truth of his word, when both our mind and hearts are submitted to Christ, we can make balanced decisions which will control the way we think, speak, and act. Now, we're going to flow into Paul making a transition. He's going to get specific now about the way we think, act, and speak. He kind of gives this general premise. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. Walk as someone who's been made new, right? Cast off those old garments. Put these on. This is probably a good time to remind those here who belong to Christ that this new way of thinking, acting, and speaking, it's not to get Jesus to love us or make us new. We seek to live this way because he already loves us and has made us new. Motive matters. We can get that messed up. And, and, and that really, that's really, it's wild when we're talking about this because Jesus has already done the heavy lifting for us. He took the prison sentence that we all earned and deserves. He already made us free. He's just asking us to believe that. He's asking us to throw down our prison jumpsuit as a result. And here's the thing. You can put on a cardigan, you can put on a hoodie, you can put on a t-shirt, you can put on something real nice with buttons. Listen, everybody's going to look different when it comes to this. Just quit dressing like a daggone prisoner. That's all he's asking. Right? Amen. Verses 25 through 32, they lay out some specifics about how putting on the new self plays out practically in our lives. Very thankful for this coherent flow of thought inspired by the Spirit of God. We're not just giving a bunch of principles and off you go. We're going to get some practicality. You will see as we go through this why I keep dividing the conduct of someone that is walking in the newness Jesus provides into three parts. How we think, how we speak, and how we act. That's going to make more sense as we work through these specifics. Because here's the truth. These all build off of and influence the other. If you think biblically, it will help you speak and act biblically. If you act and speak biblically, sometimes you'll have to do that by faith, but if you will act and speak biblically, many times that will help you think biblically later down the road. These all weave in and out of each other, and they're tied together. Okay, so this brings us to verse 25, and we're going to start getting into the specifics. If we're going to walk in newness, not in that old foolishness, here's what it's going to look like. Therefore, because of that, because we're new, laying aside all falsehoods, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first thing is quit lying, <laughs> right? That's what he says. Now, I think many, many times we think about the fact that, like Jesus said, you know, if you give a cup of cool water to one of these children in my name, you've done it unto me, right? And that's good. We should think about that. That should motivate uh, mercy ministry that we do. It should motivate uh, the stuff that we do here at Love City Church out on the streets. Every time we feed somebody that's hungry, Jesus said, you're doing that to me. Every time we encourage somebody that's downtrodden, we pray for somebody, uh, we look someone in the eyes and tell them that they're loved and nobody's spoken to them in a while. Every time we meet one of those needs and we show that kindness that comes from God and because of his gospel, it's, Jesus counts it like we're doing it unto him. And I'm very, very thankful for that. But I think sometimes what we don't remember is that this is also true on the flip side, right? Because when, when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus and knocked him off of his beast, right? 
and the light was so bright, he got like welder's blindness. What did Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? When Ananias and Sapphira were caught lying about how much money they sold their land for, and they were trying to make everyone you know, think they were awesome because they were giving it all, and, and nobody told them they had to give it all, but they were, they were lying to the people there. What did Peter say? He said, why are you guys lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you lying to God? Here's the whole point of what I'm saying. When you lie to somebody, especially somebody that is a part of the family of God, Jesus takes it personally. And so, yes, you give a cup of cold water to somebody in his name, you may as well have done that to him. Amen. But when you lie to somebody, you may as well have done that to him. And here's my question, okay? If we could sit you for 30 seconds in front of Revelation Jesus with brass feet, hair white as snow, fire in his eyes, sword coming up out of his mouth, right? Riding his war horse. I'm talking about Revelation Jesus. I know most of you stay out of that book, but it's in there. And there's some pictures of Jesus in there that's a lot different than, you know, the precious moments Jesus you got at home, you know, the, the cross-stitch thing in the bathroom that grandma made where Jesus, you know, has got hair product and he's petting lambs and all that type of stuff. Listen, he's, that's him too. I'm just saying, <laughs> that's not how he's going to come back. And what I'm asking you is, if I sit you in front of fire eyes, feet like brass, hair white as wool, revelation Jesus, you going to lie to him? He asks you a question. You're going to be speaking falsehoods? I don't want to lie to either one. I'm not lying to precious moments, Jesus. I'm not lying to revelation, Jesus. It's all the same, Jesus. I'm not playing with him whatsoever, okay? Because he's the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, the one that was there at the foundations of the world. So I'm not playing games with him, but we need to understand that when we're lying, Jesus is taking that personally. We can justify lies to other people because we know they're imperfect too, Right? And we can, we can not feel so bad about it. Well, I'm sure they lied too, or, you know, or they can't handle the truth, or whatever. You know, we're unfortunately masters at justifying ourselves. But Jesus takes it personally. So let, let's not be lying to one another, because I don't think any of us really want to be lying to the Lord. Aside from the fact that it undermines trust and unity and all the other things that this set of verses is seeking to cultivate in us as God's people. Okay? Verse 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Okay, we need to make a distinction, okay? It says, be angry and yet do not sin, okay? So that's very important for us to understand. All anger is not sinful, okay? There is righteous anger. There are reasons for which we should be angry, there are things uh, in this world, there are atrocities that exist as a result of sin that if we do not feel angry about them, then probably there's an issue with us. There are things that should infuriate us. When, when the innocent are oppressed, when uh, people are taken advantage of, when evil seems to be winning, those things should spur in us the same kind of righteous anger that it does in God. But we need to understand that uh, God's anger is always in perfect proportion, and it's always balanced with the rest of his attributes, and they all flow into and out of one another. We do not have that. <laughs> we oftentimes uh, can get emotions and uh, elements of how we think about things out of proportion. And so there is righteous anger, we need to say that, um, but 
If you already knew that and you've known that for a long time, you've probably been tempted at some point to label sinful anger as righteous anger. You had some reason why you thought you were justified in your indignation, and um, probably you weren't, <laughs> okay? So we, we need to say there's righteous anger, but we need to also understand there's a lot of warnings in the Scripture about us sinning in our anger. And it's, it's, a, it's an emotion that can take us uh, to places that are not helpful for us or for others. So that is possible. Now, part of how it helps us is it gives us a time frame. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, okay? So that helps us understand, okay, I may, I may have a reason to be angry. I may have a reason to be offended, but this ties back to something we talked about within the last couple of weeks in terms of how do we deal with conflict and difficulty. Jesus gave us an outline for that. So we don't just sit on it. We don't just stew on it. We don't uh, let it just rest in our hearts and turn into seeds of bitterness that, that fuel sinful attitudes or actions. We, we, if we have a conflict, we go for the sake of unity and seeking restoration and reconciliation. We deal with that when at all possible. And He's saying here, don't let the sun go down in your anger. So if you don't have the opportunity to make it right with somebody or to approach somebody, deal with something, then the only alternative we have at that point is to, is to take it to the Lord and to understand, okay, Lord, I, I, I believe your word that says, if I let the sun go down in my anger and do not give the devil an opportunity, right? Some translations will say a foothold. So if I do that, if I refuse to deal with this, I know that basically I'm putting on a Team Satan jersey at that point. I'm deciding, okay... Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be on Team Jesus, but I'm, I'm going to throw in a, a Team Satan jersey, and I'm going to help him. Because I want, I, what does it say? If you, if you do this, if you don't deal with anger, and you let the sun go down in your anger, that means you're carrying into the next day, you're carrying into the next day. What, it says you're giving Satan an opportunity, okay? He doesn't need any help. He's been doing what he's been doing for a long time. He's been outsmarting, conniving, and deceiving people for a long time. And he definitely doesn't need us, the children of God that are supposed to be making war with him, helping him. And we do oftentimes do that by being lazy or slothful in assessing our own emotions and what's going on. Sometimes we, sometimes we get into that futility thing, man. We might have anger or bitterness, and it's not a matter of even that we're having this tug of war or, or this, do I want to deal with it? Do I not? Man, I hate to give him any credit. Satan's so crafty, he won't even let you get to the point where you're dealing with that. Because really, most of you, you get in a tug of war with the Holy Spirit, and you're going back and forth, he's going to win, Right? And, and praise God for that. But, but what he'll do is he'll get you to that futility. Instead of dealing with it, he'll have you on Netflix. And if you can't find something on Netflix after you search for an hour, he'll get you on Hulu. And then he'll have you over here on this other thing, whatever. And I'm, I'm not against entertainment in and of itself, but what I'm saying is sometimes God will use, I'm sorry, Satan will use distractions to get you into something futile so that that, that just keeps you from dealing with the thing. It's not even a matter of you're not wrestling with it anymore because you're filling your mind with some other old foolish stuff. That's how Satan works, man. And sometimes it's not entertainment. Sometimes it's, I'm mad about this thing, and, and then, you know, a spark plug blows out of the motor on the car, and now i got to deal with that. So it's this other thing, or whatever, right? It'll just keep you busy. Hop into this, hop into that, hop into this, hop into that, so that you don't have time to sit and assess, am I holding bitterness against anybody? Am I holding unforgiveness? Am I angry at anybody? And every time we do that, every time we let that go for days, we're opening up opportunities for the devil to do his thing. The book of James says where, where uh, discord and where strife exists, there's every evil thing. Not something we want to be playing with, for sure. I don't want to have a Team Satan jersey on, ever. 
I want to have my sword out and I want to be making war against him and I want to be on Team Jesus 24-7. Amen. All right. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. This is an incredible verse. And it teaches us so much. It deals with the mechanism and the motive for provision and generosity. Because it says, first of all, the mechanism. We can't steal. We can't use conniving, crafty schemes uh, to, in order to direct resources towards us. Paul says we need to labor. Now, that doesn't mean physical, manual labor. There's lots of different ways that humans can legitimately work uh, that contributes to the betterment of, of all of us in society and uh, that you can be paid for that. And so, you know, it's not here that he's saying everyone's got to be a farmer or a plumber or somebody that works with their hands. Of course, that's not what he's saying, but we, we do need to work. Stealing's not an option. Um, and we can't even, as much as I like the idea of Robin Hood, I, really, I, I resonate with Robin Hood. If I, I would have been a merry man if I didn't take the whole thing over, if I was around when that was going on, right? Because I get it. Look at these rich, evil guys, and look at all these poor people. They're, they're oppressing. I'm about getting a bow and arrow and doing something about it, right? I can, that just rings true right in my little heart, okay? But my heart is wicked, and I need to understand that uh, vengeance is the Lord's, not Robin Vince's, okay? And... I need to let God handle that, and I can't, I can't steal from anybody and justify it, whether I'm bringing it to myself, right? And I've, <laughs> you know, the wealth of the wicked stored up for the righteous. You misquoting, taking verses out of context, rascal. Don't do that. That's not what that means. If God moves some wealth from the wicked and brings it over to the righteous, if he does it, that's on him, his prerogative, he's perfect, he can do it. When you take your sticky little fingers and start moving funds around, okay, uh-uh, that's a sin, okay? He who steals must steal no longer, including all the ways you could possibly justify it. Amen. Okay. So that's the mechanism. No stealing. We got to work. The motive, though. Oh, it's good. The motive. What's he say? Performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. What a, what a beautiful bar to set for ourselves, friends. And if we are honest, most of us, when we work, however we work, the first thing we're thinking about is not, God, please allow me to work in such a way, to prosper in such a way, not only that I can provide for my needs and the needs of my family, but that I will have also extra to be generous to give to someone else that may have need. But that is the right way to think. I'm talking about when you're, when you're going in in the morning and you're rubbing those crusties out of your eyes and you are not feeling it that day. I do not want to go to work. What a beautiful motivation. And I know this is hard. This is something the Holy Ghost can have to help us with. The, the, part of the motivation for going to work on those days when you do not want to go to work is not, because you might be all right, right? You might got a little bit in the bank or you got a little stash or whatever. Or you've been really frugal. You've done a good job. And now, you know what? If you didn't go to work for a day, you to get paid for a day, that you know what, that wouldn't matter to you. But man, what if 
We thought in terms of the fact God's given me gifts and he's given me an ability to labor and to work. And it's not just about making sure I can eat or I got a roof over my head or I got a comfortable bed to sleep in or clean water to drink. But God's called me to to think about beyond me and mine and to think about the fact that he's given me the ability to work so that I can bring in provision to also be a blessing to others. Oh man, if that existed and if that dwelt more towards the front of our thinking, how beautiful that would be. The generosity was one of the key motivations for why we work. Is that what it's saying or is that what it's not saying? I know I'm getting close and dancing around talking about money, so I see the faces. (laughs) Hold on. Is he talking about my money? Yeah, I'm going to do it. You don't even have any money. Okay, because the, the breath in your lungs, your very existence, you owe all of that to God. The Bible is very clear. You're a steward. If you've got some stuff that you're in control of, a house and some vehicles and maybe some, some, some cash, uh, that's to, that's, God has placed that in your hand to, to use and to steward, but it belongs to him. And so when there, there's this inversion that the first time I heard it, it's helped me think right, I think at least when I'm thinking, right? It helps me to get to this place, I believe the scriptures would call us to. It's never the right question to say, how much of my money should I be giving to God? Or how much of my money should I be giving towards gospel ministry? Or how much of my money should I be giving to make sure that uh, the poor are taken care of? The question should always be, how much of God's money am I going to keep for myself? That's really the right way to think about it. And some of you don't like that, and that's okay. We're all on a journey here and we're all growing, but I'm telling you right now, that's the right way to think about it. Go look at all the scriptures say about work and provision and generosity. Everything we have belongs to God. And rightly so. If any of us are foolish enough to think we have what we have because we've pulled up our own bootstraps and done it on our own, I mean, that is one of the reasons, guys, it helps me so much. There's enough people now that are are helping me with the, the... the uh, homeless outreaches that we do, I don't have to go every week. There's people that could run it. But part of the reason I go every week is because it keeps my mind right. Because every time I go down there, it helps me remember the stories that I hear, the people that I hug and cry with and pray with. When I hear how they got there many times, it helps me remember every single time. I'm two or three bad breaks away from being down there with them. It is by the grace of God alone that any of us is not in that situation. And so that helps you not look down on people. It helps you have compassion and it helps you understand that what you got, what you have control of is, is not yours to do with what you please, that God has entrusted that to you. And so you should proceed accordingly. Amen. Verse 29. Ooh, buddy. This is a good one. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. This, I mean, I'm, I'm all, I talk many times in terms of like the scripture setting high bars. This is a high bar, okay? Because what did it say? This is not hyperbole. <laughs> Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Wow, okay. We need to acknowledge when we fail at this, because we do, and we should be in constant prayer asking for help from God with these mouths of ours. 
Because no unwholesome word, only that which is uplifting and edifying in the moment. So what does this take? And, and this, this really, to some degree, it's doing the same thing that the law did in the Old Testament. When, when verses like this hit me, it makes me instantly understand how much I need the Holy Ghost help. I'm very far away from letting no unhelpful communication come out of my mouth. Thank God that Jesus is long-suffering and patient, and that he's promised to be with us to walk these things out. Because we're not doing this on our own. James picks up this idea, the importance of this in James chapter 3. Let me read this to you. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. So what's he saying? <laughs> Y'all are stumbling <laughs> somehow. He says, able to bridle the whole body as well. That doesn't mean that's not what we shoot for. That doesn't mean that's not where the bar said it is. And we should jump for it. We should ask for God's help. But we need to be quick to repent when we come short. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. They Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. What did Jesus say? It's not that which goes into a man, but that which comes out that defiles him. It sets fire to the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. We good on that? Okay. Praise God. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Many commentators agree that this grieving of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's best described by the hard-heartedness and that callous language that we were talking about from before. Um, so we could really grieve the Holy Spirit by any of these, uh, doing any of these things we're being warned against. Um, or not doing the things that we're being encouraged to, but it's, it's really that, that long-standing, stiff-necked, kind of rebellious, I'm going to keep doing it type attitude, that that really, that grieves the Holy Spirit. So when we ignore God's benevolent beckoning, as a foolish child ignores a parent who calls them out of a busy road, we grieve the Holy Spirit who seeks to help us all the time in this way. Spurgeon commenting on this, Got a couple of things here I want to read you. He said, I think now, I think I now see the Spirit of God grieving when you are sitting down to read a novel and there your Bible unread. You have no time for prayer, but the Spirit sees you very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him. The Holy Spirit's grief is not of a petty, oversensitive nature. 
He is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes, for he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows and our sins. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. May we not grieve the Holy Spirit through foolishness or insistence in rebellion. It's definitely not to our benefit, and it brings no glory to God. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Whew, um, Paul's, Paul's the, uh, he's, he's like a uh, thesaurus here, man. He's got, he's thought of every word. So, I'm going to break this down. These all seem like just iterations of anger, and they are to some degree, but why? I mean, he could have just said anger, but he uses all these words. So let's see where they are specific uh, to help eliminate any wiggle room for us, okay? So bitterness is long-standing anger over offense, okay? It's a poison that will bring death if it's undealt with. Bitterness is long-standing. We're unwilling to deal with it, angry or offended. Wrath is impulsive anger and, and the rash actions that follow, okay? So think of someone that's prone to fighting or prone to seeking revenge. Uh, the truth is we can be free from wrath because we know God's wrath is perfect. It's very tempting. I, I don't know if this is true for you, but in my natural sinful tendency is, if, if, especially if somebody that I care for is wronged, it's even more likely. If, if you wrong me, it's easier for me to get get to a place of forgiving most of the time, but if you hurt somebody I love, there's a sinful tendency in me that thinks, you know, now I'm going to be God's right hand of justice in the earth and bring, bring down fire upon you, right? Like, there's this revenge sin tendency. But, but what brings, what tamps that down is understanding that God said vengeance is his and he will repay. And so God will do exactly what is just with each and every person exactly what is right. And his, he can do that. God can be wrathful because he's perfect. I don't get to be wrathful because I'm not perfect. My sense of justice is not perfect. My scales are skewed by my own sinful tendencies, by the, the, the you know, residual blindness I still deal with and not seeing things the way exactly God sees them. So I don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner. None of us do, okay? We can be free from wrath and vengeance because we know gods are perfect. He'll take care of it. I'm, te- I'm telling you right now, some of you aren't so sure about that, but if you'll grab that and believe that and walk that out, you, you'll be free, man. I've lived chained to feeling like I'm going to let somebody get away with something if I don't handle it. That's a bad way to live. Clamor. What is clamor? The word used here in, in the Greek, it's like the sound that ravens make. That real high pitch, it's almost like nails on a chalkboard. That's, that's what the idea is. So it's, it's a high pitch, like shrieking almost. That's what he's saying. So this is talking about when someone just like, I don't know if you've seen this before. Think of, maybe you've seen this in person or you know, you've watched Jerry Springer or something like that. When people just lose their stuff, man, and they start shooting off at the mouth and it's like so emotionally charged that they are, they're out of control. And they're just saying whatever word vomit comes up. And it's almost like it's not even, even coherent anymore. You know, something like that. That's clamor. Something close to that. 
It's just, they're out, they've lost it. They're out of control. And, and, and that, that is being reflected by the kind of communication that's coming out of their mouth, and that's never helpful for anybody. If you're getting... <laughs> I, I, I see some people looking at other people in here. I would not do that if I were you, especially if you're a husband looking towards a wife. You should find somewhere else to put your eyes, brother. <laughs> because... You know, just trying to help you. Okay, slander. Let's move on to slander. Let's get away from clamor. <laughs> slander is closely related to gossip, okay? It's basically running your mouth about people because you are upset or offended. Many times what you're saying about that situation, you believe to be true, but it's because your perception is skewed by your offense, and so you end up not only sinning by talking bad about somebody, but also unintentionally lying. This happens a lot when we get into the dangerous water of assuming people's motives. Everyone say this with me. I am not God. Go ahead. Everyone say, I cannot see in people's hearts. Go ahead, say that. So I should not assume motives. Go ahead, say that too. Now, if you'll do that, it'll help you. And if we'll do that, it'll help us. Because many times what Satan wants you to do is, is read what somebody did a certain way and decide that you know exactly what fueled all of that. And I, I could not tell you how many times I've sat down to try to give pastoral care and walk people through, whether it's a married couple, it's friends, it's whoever, through some issue of offense. And it takes us about five minutes to realize that somebody did something and, and they thought it was for this reason, but once they heard the actual reason, it made total sense, and the offense just melted away into nothing. Because they weren't even mad about the thing, necessarily. They were mad about why they thought they did the thing, or said the thing. Let's not assume motives. Let's not get pulled into slander. Addressing issues with people helps with this a lot, right? Because if you refuse to go deal with something, you're left there with your imagination to just spool up whatever and decide that this, this is what it's about, or this is why it happened, or this is what's going on in their heart, if you just go talk to them, you, you might find out that, yeah, you know what, they did or said that because they, they had a cornhole moment, and they were just being a cornhole, right? They're, they're being a, a dingling. Sometimes that happens, so then you can forgive them, and, and they can say they're sorry and move on, right? And it's, it's wonderful, but sometimes you're going to find out that it's not even what you thought it was, and, and probably more often than, than we'd like to admit, so Amen. Malice. Malice is planned actions that often flow out of undealt with anger or bitterness. Okay? So you're not just thinking or talking about how mad you are at somebody. You are hatching a plan to get back at them. Okay? The same remedy for this is, 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 is similar to the remedy for wrath. If you trust that God will handle it, that God's sense of justice is better than you, it's more complete than you, that if someone's not going to turn from sin to trust in Jesus, ultimately God dealing with them uh, is, is going to be far more severe than anything you could ever pull off anyways. And ultimately, when we begin to realize of you know, what we deserved and what Christ gave us instead, the hope is that even the person that has wronged us to the deepest degree, we would hope that ultimately they would turn from sin to trust in Jesus. That's what loving your enemies looks like. I know that can be hard. I know some wounds are real deep. I know some people seem real wicked, but every one of us deserved eternal separation from God, and we got Jesus instead. We got hope for this life and for eternity. Um, 
Not everyone will receive the free gift of salvation, but we should, at least in our hearts, hope for that. So the question here is, why did Paul use so many different words to describe a similar sinful tendency, right? Bitterness, anger, clamor. Why did he he do that? He did that because of our other sinful tendency of justification, right? I mean, couldn't you just see yourself saying, if this scripture said, keep yourself far away from, from anger, couldn't you just see yourself saying, oh, I'm not mad, I'm offended, right? If, if he didn't hit all of them, if he didn't like close up every loop for you, oh, I'm not wrathful, I'm just bitter. Oh, I'm not slandering, I'm clamoring. He even put clamor in there, okay? So stay up out the clamoring, right? Sometimes, you know, the Holy Ghost had to have these guys close up our loopholes because we'll find them. <laughs> we'll find them. We, we can tend to be masters at justifying ourselves, and it's unhealthy and unhelpful. We should be quick to repent, quick to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. Verse 32. So this would be the contrast to all of that. The other side of the coin. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Friends, filling our minds and our hearts with the truth of the gospel and how good Jesus has been to us is absolutely how we can be good to others. That's how we stay out of this stuff. That's why every single week, week in and week out, we are laying the table out again. We are setting the table and we are feasting upon the beauty of the gospel once again. We're putting it before our eyes. We're filling our hearts and minds with the gospel because it is only in those moments when you forget the beautiful truth of the gospel as it's been applied to you that you can get into all this other foolishness described. The only way we hold on to bitterness or we, we walk into wrath or we're clamoring, the only way we get into all that is by forgetting how incredibly gracious and precious Jesus has been to us. But if we keep that in the forefront of our thinking, and if we live out of that beautiful truth, it keeps us out of these sinful tendencies, and it helps us to cultivate the kind of love and unity both within the the body of Christ that, that God is looking for, but it also allows us to treat those who have yet to understand how good Jesus is with love and respect, to be gentle with them in a way that would show them there's something different about people that belong to Jesus. May we be a people who understand that we are united in one body, and so everything we do, good or bad, affects the rest of that body. May we cast off the old self with all its futile foolishness and put on the new self, walking in freedom and faithfulness. And may the way we think, act, and speak bring glory to our King, showing the world around us how real and powerful he really is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for this second half of Ephesians 4. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement. Thank you for calling us to throw off the old self and to put on the new. Thank you for reminding us yet again that we are not ruled by our past, not by our own mistakes or our own sins or the sins that have been committed against us. Thank you that we are free because of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for building us up and showing us another way how you've provided and how you've given us the opportunity to walk in freedom. We're so thankful for that. 
But I thank you, you didn't end there, Lord. You, you laid out for us what it means to walk in that freedom, what it looks like, what you expect of us as free people. God, we confess right now. We confess that we are prone to unrighteous anger. We are prone to quick judgment. We are prone to assume people's motives. We are prone, God, to forget how good you've been to us and use that to measure how it is we're going to deal with others. We forget how patient and long-suffering you've been with us when we decide to what length we're going to go in loving and forgiving others. God, we don't do well at this. We confess that sin and we ask you to help us because we see, we see what you're saying. We understand. We understand that the thumb connects to tendons and nerves and vessels and that it connects to our heart and our lungs and everything is together. And so God, we know that when each one of us chooses to either walk in these things or not walk in these things, the health of the whole body is affected. And God, this is not just about us. This is not just about what we're doing in our little corner, but God, you've brought us together. You've, you've lashed us together in such a way that our lives are connected. Our mission is connected. You've put us in a place where we have to depend on one another. So God, help us not only to be convicted about these things in our own life, but to seek out ways to encourage one another, to spur each other on to love and good works in all of this, God. We do want to cast off the old man and, and put on the new. God, help us to quit wearing those prison clothes. Help us, Lord Jesus, to walk in love and walk in unity and walk in freedom. Help us be quick to forgive. Help us be slow to open our mouths God, I ask you to put a gate over our mouths. Help us with that high bar of letting no unwholesome talk escape our lips, but only what is good and edifying. In that moment, God, we, can, we don't know what's good and edifying in most moments. We can't do this without you. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to do any of this. So please, God, first of all, really convince us of that. Lord, teach us to call out, to cry out to you, to plead with you daily to declare our need for you at all times. And then, Lord, please do what you always do and answer. Be faithful to your promises. Thank you that you are. We love you and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.